It's Wednesday, September the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are London editor Dennis Staunton, our Europe correspondent Naomi O'Leary, and political editor Pat Leahy. And later on, we're going to be discussing the appointment of Mairead McGuinness as Phil Hogan's replacement on the European Commission. And we'll be looking ahead to the government's new living with COVID plan. But first of all, international law and the remarkable statement by the British government that it plans to illegally override the withdrawal treaty it signed with the European Union less than 11 months ago. Uh, before I go to our guests, I want to play two short clips. The first is Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. And the second is UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock speaking on Times Radio this morning. Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain very tightly defined circumstances. There are clear precedents for the UK and indeed other countries needing to consider their international obligations as circumstances change. And I would say to honourable members here, many of whom... Are you comfortable with a minister saying the UK is willing to break international law? Well, I am. The primary... The primary international obligation is, in this case, in the in this around this issue, is to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland, uh, and I, I very much hope that we uh, that we conclude a deal before the end of the transition period, and I think that we will, and it's in everybody's interest to do so, um, as we did last time. Um, but I also understand why ministers have chosen uh, to prioritise. Uh, at the absolute top of the uh, of that, uh, the importance of protecting the peace process in Northern Ireland. Okay, Dennis, you were in the gallery and uh, the House of Commons yesterday for that statement. The first one we heard there from from Brandon Lewis. It felt like, uh, if not an extraordinary, certainly an important moment. Did it feel like that in the moment? It felt like uh, a really astonishing moment. And in fact, so much so that most of us who were there, including the MPs down below didn't at first believe what we were hearing. And somebody, one of my colleagues came over to me and said, he did actually say, we're not going to break international law, didn't he? But of course, he actually did say that. It also was clear that uh, this was not him misspeaking. He was reading from a script uh, in response to a question by from Bob Neal, who's a, a conservative MP and lawyer, uh, who had asked him specifically about this. And he said uh, what you heard him say, which was that they planned to, uh, that what they were doing would be in breach of international law, but in a very limited and defined way. And uh, and and then, uh, you know, there were a few questions later where he more or less gave a similar answer. And then subsequently Downing Street then uh, gave the same uh, kind of response and the same sort of justification, saying that it was necessary to do this in a limited way to protect the peace process in Northern Ireland because and the Good Friday Agreement and that that was the purpose of the protocol. And then they'd mentioned a number of things, including what he mentioned about the uh, finance bill in the Finance Act in 2015, which George Osborne was the Chancellor at the time. He later said this isn't actually applicable because or comparable because it was actually about sort of double taxation treaties and it was kind of done with consent. They also mentioned the fact that when Canada legalized cannabis, that was in breach of some international agreements they had made with regard to drug policy. But these all seem uh, to to people listening at the time uh, really to be fairly feeble uh, examples. And this was an astonishing moment for a minister to come in and say, yes, we're introducing, we're publishing a bill tomorrow, and yes, it is in breach of international law. 
How much shock has it caused in the UK or is it just seen as another, you know, more grist to the mill of the daily political agenda? Is it seen as a as an important moment? I think it is an important moment. I mean, I think the, the thing is that it sort of moved down the news agenda late last night because the government uh, announced some new restrictions to do with coronavirus so that instead of being allowed to meet with 30 people, you can only meet with six. And so that then became uh, a bigger story. And also because some of these details are arcane, uh, it's not, you know, so it's, for example, it's on page 14 of the Daily Mail this morning. It's not on the front page. It's on the front page of some other papers. What strikes me as being the, uh, in a way, important moment where the political culture of Britain is concerned is that if you look at the parliamentary arithmetic, if the eight DUP MPs vote with the government in favour of this bill, then you need 56 Conservative rebels. I don't know anybody at Westminster who believes you'd get a fraction of that. And the fact that you really can't get even probably a dozen Conservative MPs to vote against a bill which the government itself has said is in breach of international law, seems to me to tell you that this Conservative Party, it's not just that it's not the Conservative Party of David Cameron or John Major or Margaret Thatcher, but it is much more like the capture of the Republicans on Capitol Hill, or indeed a party like, say, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, uh, where, and you've seen some evidence of this already. I mean, if you look so, even at the economic policies of uh, of the Conservative Party now, it's much closer, in a way, to some of those uh, right-wing movements elsewhere in Europe than it is to the traditional, say, Thatcherite and post-Thatcherite economic orthodoxy. Naomi, uh, Dennis's comparison with the um, Republican behaviour in the United States and indeed with law and order in, in Poland is is interesting because what both those political movements have demonstrated over the last few years is that there's a lot of things taken for granted about norms which are not necessarily always established in law, although we are discussing discussing law here, but that if a political movement decides to put it up to the existing system in the way that uh, Donald Trump has done in certain kinds of ways, and indeed law and order have done to the EU, it's very difficult to push back against it because it's the, the political system is not used to things like this happening. I suppose this is a very long-winded way of asking, what is the European Union going to do about the fact that the United Kingdom is now resiling from a legally binding treaty it signed a year ago? It's extremely difficult to deal with. It's like I made the comparison before that's like you're playing chess with someone and suddenly they start wrestling you. You know, it's just totally different rules. It's difficult to know what the natural recourse is. And I mean, I think from the perspective of Brussels, the British government is not actually acting in its own self-interest, which makes it extremely difficult to deal with and difficult to predict. Um, the reaction to this, starting with the report in the Financial Times on Sunday and then confirmed with these with these statements has really been shock and people have reacted quite emotionally. You know, it's kind of freaked people out. It's something like they just don't know how to deal with. And also it's kind of revealing the, the, the tiredness of people of dealing with the issue. You know, it's been kind of years of work of people's life to to get this withdrawal agreement done, you know, and then to, to work towards the future relationship deal as well. And yeah, people are wearied by this, um, by this development. And yeah, it's just sort of taken the ground out from underneath the, uh, you know, what there is to rely on. It's, it's, people are trying to, to puzzle it out and 
also just saying, you know, how can this be in their self-interest? Because if you say that you're not going to respect agreements, why will people make agreements with you? And I mean, it's hard. The the mood was already pretty dark and pessimistic in regards to the possibility of getting a deal. But now it seems almost like deliberate sabotage. I think that's how it's coming across, Um, you know, that they couldn't possibly be trying to get a deal. And again, it's brought up the old sort of theorizing about what really is going on in the mind of Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings, as it might be. You know, do they have a grand plan? Is it all a bluff? Do they really mean what they say? Or are they in some way uncertain and reacting to the particular circumstances and domestic politics, perhaps trying to um, gain back some support that they felt was slipping away from them? Um, So it's been very destabilizing. And I think there's probably, there is a chance of the talks breaking up, I think. Pat, the the Matt Hancock um, clip, which the second clip which we played, in which he talks about the reason why they're doing this is to protect the peace process. That seems to me to add even perhaps further insult to injury that the United Kingdom is making a unilateral decision to um, to implement legislation to protect the peace process, which by definition is a joint enterprise, including um, the government in Northern Ireland and, of course, the government in Dublin. Yeah, I think you know. Cloaking this in the mantle of protecting the peace process is something that will be pretty smartly dismissed in um, in Dublin. Um, I mean, if there's if there's one thing that is clear, even I think at this stage to lots of people in in Northern Ireland, lots of unionists, it's that concern for Northern Ireland one way are another is pretty far down the list of British priorities when it comes to uh, this process. The reaction, though, in Dublin, I think, um, over recent days has been fairly phlegmatic. Um, You know, ministers, senior officials referred to British sabre rattling in advance of the, the final phase or uh, the, this this coming decisive phase of Brexit talks, and you know, it's it's. I mean, it is. It's almost kind of a this game theory approach. You know that if you convince, if you convince your opponent that you know you're mad and you're willing to do anything, then then that gives you a sort of an edge in uh, in negotiations. Um, the General consensus still in Dublin is that the British are, insofar as I can gauge it, is that the British will ultimately do a deal, and this is part of uh, this. You know, this is part of the prelude to the the final round of negotiations, and it is designed to to give them an edge. Partly that's because senior official officials and ministers have such a long experience of dealing pretty closely on lots of things, including the North, but but lots of other things too, with uh, with the British government in its widest manifestation, that they can't really believe that the British government would, uh, would simply walk away from a treaty that they signed last year. I mean, it, it's one of the main precepts of international relations that any 
government is bound by the commitments made by its predecessors. And while that may sometimes come uh, under pressure in specific instances, I can't think, maybe the lads can help me, but I can't think of an instance where... um, uh, you know, where a government has refused to be bound by commitments that it has itself made, uh, as, uh, as as is the case in this instance. And um, so the general sense, I think, in Dublin uh, is that, you know, this is sabre rattling. And so if there is, you know, if the British government was seen to double down on it yesterday with those comments in the House, the House of Commons that you played earlier I suppose that's not really surprising. I mean, if you're going to rattle your sabre, you might as well give it a good old rattle. You don't give it one a rattle and the following day then come along and say, sorry, I didn't mean to cause that racket uh, uh, with the sword that I've no intention of using. So um, that I think is still the, the general consensus in Dublin. Although it is becoming clear that they're de- they may be dealing with a different type of British government, and that a no-deal outcome is nearer now or a more realistic prospect now than it has been at any stage in the process previously. And uh, and that they, the analysis that this is just sabre-rattling needs to be matched with preparations for the outcome and uh, the, the consequences if it turns out not to be sabre-rattling. I mean, I suppose, Dennis, the thing with madman theory is, I think it originated in uh, um, in nuclear deterrence, is that the alternative is so absolutely dreadful to contemplate that ultimately the, you'll back down at the, at the fear that the madman will unleash his, his missiles. But if the madman thinks that the missiles aren't so bad, uh, which is really what um, the Johnson government has been saying over the last couple of months, isn't it? I.e. no deal is quite a quite a reasonable option and in fact has something to recommend it. That's a different kind of a dynamic, isn't it? I think also the, one of the weaknesses of the British negotiating position has been that uh, they have struggled to make no deal a credible option as far as the Europeans are concerned. So in other words, the European partners thought they're probably not going to do it because uh, it's not going to work for them. And there are particularly a number of weaknesses and vulnerabilities to the no deal scenario. So it might be useful just to describe what the British are planning to do with these laws. So, and the, the way in which the, they're planning to break international law is because uh, in the withdrawal agreement, Article 4 of it says that a uh, principle of EU law called direct effect, that will apply to everything in the withdrawal agreement. And what that means is that a court in Britain or in a European country will have to disapply any domestic measures that contradict this European measure. So in other words, the uh, withdrawal agreements measures override any domestic law. What the British are going to do in this legislation is to disapply that principle of direct effect in three areas. And these are, the first two are to do with the uh, movement of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. And so what the withdrawal agreement says is that uh, all goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will be regarded as being at risk of going into the European single market through the rest of Ireland, unless they're explicitly uh, you know, uh, set aside and uh, allowed to go through by the joint committee between Britain and the European Union, uh, which meets fairly regularly and is trying to work out how to classify which goods are safe and which are at risk. Uh, 
And what the British are saying is, no, a British minister, like we'll try to get agreement in the joint committee, but if the joint committee can't agree by the end of the year, then a British minister will decide which of these goods are at risk and which are not. And then the second thing to do with that is uh, that goods going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, uh, because Northern Ireland will be subject to the Universal Customs Code of the European Union, part of that says that they will have to be accompanied by an export declaration. Almost nobody thinks this is really a good idea, certainly in Northern Ireland, in Britain, I think in uh, the rest of Ireland as well. Uh, But nonetheless, it's kind of there and it's a sort of a negotiating thing and it's an irritation. And there's always been a hope that the uh, Europeans would say, "Okay, you don't have to do this. But what they're saying is actually a British minister can decide these are not necessary. And then the third thing, which is the crucial thing where the negotiations are concerned, is that the uh, the protocol, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Article 10 of it says that uh, if Britain wants to introduce any state aid, me- aid measure, any subsidy, state subsidy to business, which affects the market in Northern Ireland, they must notify the European Union and effectively get the European Union's permission to do that. And what the British have always feared is that you could have a very expansive interpretation of this, which would say that any British company which happens to have any operation in Northern Ireland, even say if you were uh, subsidizing Nissan cars and somebody was selling a Nissan car in Northern Ireland, that the Europeans would be able to say, I'm sorry, this affects the market because Toyota doesn't have this and so it affects the competition and fair competition within our zone and consequently we will not allow you to subsidize Nissan in this way. And so what they want to do, so they're basically saying that it will be up to a British minister to decide, to decide that. And that what they're saying is that it will apply in Northern Ireland, but they will decide exactly how strictly to limit that to the market in Northern Ireland. And so what I, uh, you know, so this is happening in the context of negotiations where Britain is saying to the Europeans, look, we want to do a deal, but we can't agree to what you're looking for in terms of state aid regime and essentially of you having a say in ours. And, uh, and so we, we are prepared to walk away and to have no deal. And what they fear is that the Europeans can say, yeah, well, okay, if you have no deal, we'll still be able to control your state aid policy through the protocol. And also, uh, there was a report overnight in the Sun last night uh, suggesting that what another anxiety was that uh, the European Union could decide uh, that if there was no deal, Britain, Great Britain, was not a safe third country for animal and food products moving into Northern Ireland. And so the British food exporters would be and producers would be cut off from the Northern Ireland market. And and so that would have effect. So in other words, defending themselves from the impact of no deal and from European leverage over both whether both if a no deal scenario were to happen, but also to be able to say to the Europeans, when we say we can have no deal and go for this, we really can. Naomi Dennis is very helpfully, I think, and very clearly laid out, you know, the, the, the three points there, the three points at, at issue there. And I suppose that brings us back to the, the negotiations, which are ongoing this week, you know, and this is all part of that broader picture, isn't it? And in some ways it's posturing around that broader picture that Michel Barnier is in London. Um, you said earlier, I think, that the, the, the feeling on the European side or in Brussels is that the prospect of a deal is now much further away. Is that, am I right in saying that? I think that's correct. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's to, it's a combination of the timing, um, the fact that there's so little time left and also, you know, the extent to which that this is up to the ante. Everybody was expecting saber rattling. You know, the, the 
interviews given over the weekend by the likes of David Frost in the Daily Mail kind of talking up a, a no deal and stuff. That was very much priced in, I think. But I don't think that people priced in that there would be ministers um, saying in the House of Commons that they were going to break international law. No, I don't think that was expected. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we had uh, the president of the European Parliament uh, last night, David Sassoli, he met with Michel Barnier and subsequent to that meeting made a video statement in which he said he was very, very worried about the prospect of a deal and that, you know, if the UK was planning to um, not to respect its international agreements, that that would have very severe consequences. Um, so, yeah, it's absolutely being, you know, it's being followed very, very closely. And I think just the the timing makes people rather pessimistic and of course, you know, Boris Johnson has himself um, combined this upping of the ante with insisting that a deal needs to be made by October 15th or the British side will walk away. Um, so, you know, what what actual time is there left? There's just this, it's just a few days and then they're supposed to have another round in Brussels. But, you know, it, it can, is, is that feasibly possible for them to overcome the differences that we've all rehearsed many times over and know about to do with fisheries and state aid. I, I, I think people really wonder whether it's something that's feasible. Yeah, I mean, I wonder now, I mean, maybe, you know, we're all familiar with these uh, negotiation deadlines shifting and shifting and shifting until the last possible deadline. And of course, there is a hard deadline, which is the end of the year when the, um, the interim period comes to an end. But Boris Johnson picked October the 15th out of the air. The EU had been making noises about the end of October in order to give sufficient time to implement whatever measures were agreed. Behind those two dates, is there a real date in mid-November or something like that? Both of them have been timing those dates in relation to when the European Council is due to meet so that the national leaders can kind of agree to the deal um, and uh, um, coordinate. So that's the reason behind why they're they're picking those dates. Although what people say is, you know, for the final sort of dots to be put on the eyes and so on, uh, the, the last possible moment really is is early November. Um, and But, you know, I think... That wouldn't be maybe to overcome the the core issues of, of principle that are at stake, but rather just to, you know, finish off the details. Then, of course, it needs to um, be scrutinised by the European Parliament and passed there, um, as well as the nat- national ratification. So there's really quite a lot of hurdles that it has to go through. It also has to be translated into all of the official languages. So, um, you know, it's it, it, it can't go up to, uh, to um, December 31st, that's for sure. Dennis... Overnight, there were a couple of uh, tweets or um, posts from people, a senior member of the Biden campaign, in fact, his most senior foreign policy advisor, I think, and a couple of senior figures in the Congressional Democratic Party as well, essentially kind of firing warning shots about don't mess with the peace process. And in that regard, and perhaps in other ones too, given that the United Kingdom is just embarking on this process of negotiating fantastic new trade treaties, apparently, with countries around the world, is there no fear at all about, you know, a, a broader fallout from, from what's happening this week? There definitely is. And I think there's no question, but they know that uh, this is the very worst fight to pick with, uh, you know, a, a democratic-controlled Congress where the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Committee is Richie Neal, a long-standing friend of Ireland, where Joe Biden uh, is the one part of Brexit that he particularly cares about. But I think, as you say, there are other factors as well. I mean, I think you could say that the likelihood of a US-UK trade deal it's probably not that enormous anyway, just because of problems to do with 
uh, you know, what the Europe, what the Americans would wish to have, including market access for their agricultural products, and also say to do with access to the healthcare market, as they would put it. So I think there are difficulties with that in any case. But I do think there's another problem, which is that uh, if the talks are collapsing as Joe Biden wins the election, and suddenly here here is this Atlanticist who wants to uh, reestablish a rules-based international order, and Britain has announced that it's a rogue state, it's not the best footing to you know to start off on. So I think that there are certainly lots of arguments against uh, a no-deal Brexit. And I still th- think that Boris Johnson would prefer to have a deal. I think one of the problems that he's got is that in Downing Street, they don't actually believe that David Frost and Michel Barnier are going to be able to overcome the kind of problems that Naomi was talking about. And they think this requires political engagement. But one of the curiosities of the last few weeks is that nobody's phone has been ringing. So nobody from the, none of the European leaders have been calling Boris Johnson to say, uh, can we move this thing along? And he hasn't been calling them either. The last substantive conversation that he had uh, with uh, any European leaders about this issue where uh, it was the call that he made with uh, Ursula von der Leyen and the other uh, institutional presidents in the European Union sort of before the summer. He had his meeting with Michal Martin, and that appears to have gone very well. And I think they, they appear to have, uh, in, at least on this side, they believe that they got on well. And he had a call with Emmanuel Macron the other day, but again, nothing. You know, there is no sign of this high-level political engagement that they think uh, is necessary. And I and I think that you know what they're doing this week and the way in which they're handling this particular uh, you know uh, breach of international law is just something that's going to make that more difficult. Right, Dennis. We're going to let you go now because we're moving on to other matters. But thanks as always for joining us. Thank you. So Naomi, um, Dennis mentioned Ursula von der Leyen there, and uh, she's been in the news in Ireland for other reasons uh, this week. Um, I have to say, the most impressive political manoeuvre I've seen over the last few months has been the way in which Mairead McGuinness put herself forward and successfully achieved her objective of becoming Ireland's new European Commissioner. It was interesting, you know, her name began to be mentioned even before Phil Hogan had had resigned. So I think I first started to see her name coming up on the WhatsApp chat groups maybe two days when he before he resigned, when he was still clinging on to his job. Um, so there's a couple of circumstances that came together uh, for McGuinness, one being that she just is uh, one of the most prominent Irish people in Brussels. She's someone that everybody knows and is rated pretty highly. Uh, she's also a woman and Ursula von der Leyen made it pr- as clear as she could be that she wanted to uh, bring in a woman to try and bring the commission more towards its goal of gender balance. And um, the other thing is that the dynamics worked out for her because she's been vice president of the European Parliament uh, since 2014. And in these votes f- to be uh, vice president, she's won pretty big majorities. And also she ran to be president of the European Parliament before. She didn't get it, but she did pretty well. And there's a rival who also wants to be president of the European Parliament, Manfred Weber. And um, my understanding is that the European People's Party, which is, of course, the biggest pan-European grouping um, in the EU and is, is has quite a lot of influence in terms of demanding that the trade portfolio remain within their hands and so on, um, they backed McGuinness. Um, and 
Manfred Weber is their leader in the European Parliament. So in a way, it was convenient for him because he's gotten rid of a rival and his way is clear to become president of the European Parliament. So there's behind the scenes goings on and things seem to have come together pretty well for McGuinness in the moment. Pat, uh, Naomi says uh, Maureen McGuinness is rated highly in Brussels. Is she rated highly in the, by the political establishment in Dublin? I think she is. She's not very well liked, uh, is the truth of the matter. She's not popular um, in Fine Gael. That was really obvious as this saga dragged on last week, that there was many people in Fine Gael who were really opposed to her nomination as commissioner. But ultimately, I think Leo Varadkar and other parts of the government, both Greens and Fianna Fáil, were at pains to say that this is a... Uh, uh, that this was a Fine Gael decision to make. Pat, can I ask you, why is she not liked? Um, I think her colleagues would see her as, even by the standards of politicians, which is uh, saying something, they would see her to be not very much a team player, more interested in herself than the party um, something of a shameless self-promoter was the phrase that was bandied about, much of which maybe I hasten to add unfair to Miss McGuinness, uh, but it is what some of her colleagues were saying about her uh, last week, certainly. And while she has been undoubtedly highly successful in the in being first elected and then re-elected consistently to the European Parliament on the last occasion in last year's elections, topping the poll in her constituency. If you look at her performance um, within, uh, within Fine Gael, she didn't get elected to the Dáil in 2007. She didn't get elected. Uh, she, she failed to secure the party's nomination for the presidency in 2011, being uh, defeated by Gay Mitchell, who went on to bomb spectacularly in the uh, in that that year's presidential election, but she has been seen as you know a bit um, uh, standing a bit outside, I suppose, the traditional Fine Gael uh, Fine Gael family, and that hasn't endeared her to her colleagues. But I think what she demonstrated in recent weeks is that she knows. Uh, she knows Brussels and its politics an awful lot better than they do. And she made the correct and politically acute uh, political judgment that this would be decided not so much in Dublin as in, as in Brussels. And while she certainly lobbied in Dublin, I think the focus of her efforts were in Brussels, as Naomi has outlined. People in Fine Gael in Dublin are still somewhat bemused that she has managed to pull it off. Uh, but I think that just demonstrates how far ahead of them that she was from the beginning of this process. The gender element of this, I find it fascinating, Pat. I'll come back to you on this in a sec, Naomi. Um, uh, there were the three party leaders obviously had to meet, even though this was largely in the gift of Fine Gael, three male party leaders. There was discussion about who you're going to replace the large, um, slightly macho former commissioner, Phil Hogan, the prime candidate if he were to get the correct job was the kind of the second biggest boy in the class in Fine Gael, which is Simon Coveney. And all those plans came to naught because Ursula van der Leyen has a very strong commitment to gender equality and she means it. And um, the government the last time didn't send two candidates as she requested. You could argue that that was fair enough because Phil Hogan was coming back for a second term and he was a strong contender. But the the gender politics of it, I just, I, I, I sense there's that the boys got schooled a bit here. 
I think there's a certain element of that. There is a bit of resentment in uh, in Dublin that effectively the commissioner, the uh, the Irish commissioner, was picked in Brussels, not in Dublin. Now, I think it's important to add the corrective to that, that that only happened because the Irish government let it happen. It was, it is in the Irish government's, uh, it was in the Irish government's power to nominate whoever they liked for the role. They could have nominated Simon Coveney and left it at that had they wished. They didn't do that because they had got clear signals from Brussels that uh, they want, that Brussels wanted uh, a woman and wanted Mairead uh, McGuinness, I think. And that conversations that I've had with people at very senior levels in government have, um, have, have revealed that that was the unambiguous message from Brussels that was heard in Dublin. And I think that is quite a significant line to cross, irrespective of gender issues. That's quite a significant line uh, to cross for Brussels to be uh, to be picking the Irish commissioner, albeit with the caveat, as I said earlier, that the Irish government were uh, were complicit in that. But they were complicit in that, I think, um, because they felt they had no choice given the way that Ursula von der Leyen was um, was to pick the portfolio that uh, that was allocated to the Irish nominee. And you can argue that it has worked out quite well in the end for the Irish government because it has got a, if not quite a, top rank portfolio, then certainly better than a strong middle rank uh, portfolio. So um, in, in, in that respect, uh, it has worked out. On the gender issue, um, I, I suppose it's hard to divorce that entirely from the politics of it. Uh, Simon Coveney undoubtedly wanted the job. Leo Varadkar wanted to give it to him, but neither man wanted it enough that they were willing to risk being given uh, an incidental or a Mickey Mouse uh, portfolio. So I think that was a judgment that was made in the end. Um, Naomi, what do you think of the gender politics of it? And given what Pat said there, you wrote yesterday that uh, Maureen McGuinness was sort of falling upwards in terms of this unexpectedly uh, important portfolio, which he ended up with. Was that a form of reward for Ireland towing the line and doing what Ursula von der Leyen wanted? So Ursula von der Leyen has played a clever game and she's she's done a couple of very strategic moves that have got her what she wanted. So one of the things was how she handled the Phil Hogan crisis. She made him publish his itinerary publicly. And this ended up uh, tripping him up um, in a way that, you know, basically her hands weren't really on it. Um, Of course, the commission initially defended him and didn't want him to go, but they didn't fight that hard to keep him. And I think there's a dynamic going on there behind the scenes. I can easily imagine there was a bit of a culture clash there between the Hogan, who everyone describes as being a bit macho, you know, and he's a very big guy. And he's obviously something of a creature of a, a rather traditional political culture in Ireland um, coming up against uh, this uh, diminutive uh, German woman um, who is very committed to gender balance um, and sincerely so and comes from a background of being a very strong ally of Angela Merkel. Uh, So, you know, comes from a background of strong women uh, leaders. So um, that was the first move that was strategic and clever. And the second one was the power play that she did to get what she wanted out of Dublin, uh, which was to name, to say that she wanted a woman and a man uh, and so on. And 
she held all the cards really because as Pat said, you know, it's in her power to choose what portfolio she gives. And she correctly assessed that that mattered to Dublin, that the Irish government cared about what portfolio um, they would get. Um, so essentially within the commission, there aren't enough like jobs with genuine power to change policy to go around. There's 27 commissioners, one for each member state, and there's only really a few jobs that have real clout and real power. Uh, trade was one of those. And this new one that um, that Maureen McGuinness will have is a pretty good one. I mean, it's, it's viewed around Brussels that Dublin has really not fared too badly at all. Essentially what she's got is... Um, Financial Services, um, Capital Markets Union, so a portfolio known as FISMA for short, and it's about banking reforms, about improving stability of the banking system in Europe through reforms, also creating a more integrated banking system throughout Europe and Capital Markets uh, Union in Europe. And also um, there's a couple of different aspects to do with transparency of tax declarations and so on. It's quite an interesting portfolio to get in the context of the challenges facing the City of London following Brexit and given that so many financial services are relocating to hubs like Frankfurt, Amsterdam and of course Dublin. Um, so it's it's an interesting one and it's one with uh, real power to influence the economic future of Europe at quite a crunch moment like historically uh, given that uh, you know the EU is just on, about to undertake massive scale joint borrowing for the first time to pump economic stimulus into the member states to counteract the effect of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, given that this is going to be expected to be a recession of historic scale. So it's a pretty key um, portfolio to have. It also puts a constellation of Irish figures in charge of key economic briefs, including, for example, Pascal Donoghue being president of the Eurogroup. Um, and um, the person who's taken over trade is Valdis Dombrovskis, who's the Latvian commissioner. He's a former prime minister. And he already had a really quite expansive brief um, called An Economy That Works for People, which brought together a whole bunch of stuff. The FISMA or financial services portfolio was taken out of that, carved out of that and given to McGuinness. And now Dombrovskis has accumulated even more responsibility by taking on trade as well. But I think the view is that there aren't that many more trade deals for the EU to negotiate and Mercosur is seen as being on the rocks. So possibly, you know, it's um, it's not as crucial as a portfolio as people expected it would be under this term. Um, but I guess that remains to be seen. That's an interesting point about, about trade, actually. Pat, final item, I want to turn to there were very bad uh, daily figures for COVID yesterday, over 300, the worst since uh, early to mid-May. Uh, we're waiting. We seem to have been waiting for a long time. We're still waiting for next Monday. I think the new Living with COVID plan it was due to be fully announced by the government. We're, we're already getting some sense of what's involved in it. Um, this is a kind of a key point which the government has to regain control of an agenda which it doesn't seem to have been in control of mostly for the last while apart from the return to school which seems to have gone relatively well so far. Yes um, I concur with that the return to school and the leaving search results not without blips and we see some of that playing out with regard to the results today but the schools are back they look like staying back the results have not 
blown up in their faces. And I think that's immensely um, uh, important. And I think I made the point last week that for all that we were uh, obsessed with the appointment of uh, of Mairead McGuinness and the defenestration of Phil Hogan in terms of the difference that it makes to people's lives, the schools was much more significant and therefore more likely to have a, a, a political effect. But leaving that aside, the next thing that has a major influence uh, or major impact on people's lives is the uh, management of the pandemic. And you're right, I think that we're at the point, possibly would have been better had the government, you know, been at this point some weeks ago because we have, you know, we've gone through the early phase of lockdown. The coming out of lockdown has been more difficult and more complicated, a lot more stuttering, I think, than uh, than the government would have liked. And we're into the next phase now of the what they call living with the uh, living with COVID or living with the pandemic, and there is a lack of a plan or a framework for um, uh, you know for for people to adhere to thus far. And um, that having been said, it's going to be published next week. My understanding is that there is a draft in circulation, but that is being worked on and possibly heavily amended. So that has come, I think, from the Department of Health. It has gone to the Department of the Taoiseach and will be shared with uh, with other departments for their input. The the broad division, as you would expect in, uh, in, in government, probably mirrors that in society, which is that there are, uh, you know, there are people who are cautious uh, about the reopening and if you look at the kind of quietly published statistics that the of public opinion that the government collects every week uh, and 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 publishes on the Department of Health website, you'll see that there is still a very high degree of public nervousness, which is on uh, about the pandemic and uh, and uh, about its reach into society and a view. Uh, that is growing amongst the public that the worst is not behind us, but uh, ahead of us when it comes uh, to the management of uh, of the virus. So that's the view in one half of government. The other part of, of government um, believes that we have to open up society more uh, as quickly as we possibly can open up society and the economy as quickly as can uh, quickly as we can not just to find a way to live with the virus but to but for the economy to uh, to restart insofar as is possible and begin generating the tax revenues that on the other hand are needed to deal with the pandemic in the health service and social welfare and uh, and so forth. So I think that dynamic is 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 going on in government at the moment. As I understand it, there is a cabinet committee meeting tomorrow to consider the plan. I doubt if it will be finalised at that and it's likely the document I think will undergo several iterations between now and the time that it is published uh, next uh, next Tuesday, I think, Monday or Tuesday, I think. I'm not sure it's settled yet. Naomi, I'm interested to get a European perspective on this. I mean, COVID cases are rising across much of Europe, um, quite alarmingly in Spain, but generally rising, not not dissimilar to the patterns we have here. But 
What is the situation in, say, in the Benelux, where where you are? Paul Cullen, our health expert, has said on this podcast that he thinks Irish people talk too much about this stuff and there's too much arguing about it, and it's an element of we should just get on with it. Is this a live political issue? Is what the what what you know? What's the correct strategy to uh, to conduct in in Belgium and the Netherlands right now? What to open? What not to open? All those kinds of issues. I think definitely this is you know. Throughout European countries, one of the top stories um, consistently day, day in, day out, including to do with restrictions and what's going to be allowed, what's not going to be allowed. Uh, Ireland is a little bit different from other EU member states, mostly in regard to its policy on travel and borders. So broadly, the EU member states agreed to um, exclude non-essential travel into the blo- into the block and in turn open up travel between them. So it's kind of trade-off. Now, there's variety between member states. Different member states might require testing. There's also specific and constantly changing um, classifications of different areas where additional restrictions are imposed. Uh, But that does make for a key difference between um, Ireland and the rest of the EU, the kind of blanket quarantine requirement apart from the short list of green-listed countries. Um, so I don't think that that was too... That, that kind of came to light during the Phil Hogan um, saga. And th- there was a reaction among some people that, you know, it, it, that Hogan's misunderstanding of the, of the rules was, was reasonable because there are other European countries where that is the case. Um, but really across the EU, there's a spectrum of different reactions. Um, in places like the Netherlands, uh, the... The, the virus isn't is, is seen almost to have passed and normal life is kind of going on. Um, in places like France and Spain, uh, there's, you know, great concern about the number of cases, the rise in the number of cases. And there's a big, there's a much larger emphasis on face masks. Face masks are much more sort of prioritized as a policy response above, uh, you know, things like can pubs, serve food or you know this kind of um minutiae um so yeah there's there's a diff, a, a spectrum of different policy responses in terms of the eu efforts to make these more coherent they basically leave the national measures to the national governments they don't want to really get involved with that apart from just you know supporting the european center for disease protection and control um and just saying you know the the the, the advice is on there look at look at that advice but where they are concerned is where it comes to borders. And they there was a, a kind of an initiative launched last week to try and bring more coherence to how any policy to do with moving between member states is managed and essentially to try and have a common system of um, classifying what's considered a high-risk place, what happens to travel in that, um, in that circumstance. So like what additional restrictions do you do you impose on travellers? And at that point, I asked the Commission specifically about Ireland. And I said, you know, Ireland is obviously a bit of an outlier with its quarantine. Is this the kind of policy you think needs to be brought more in line? And they were like, yes, basically. Um, (laughs) And then also I asked about the uh, MEPs have been asking for to be considered essential workers like truckers to be able to uh, travel for their work without the need for quarantine. And I asked about whether 
traveling politicians should be deemed essential workers in that way. And again, the commission basically said, yes, we would think so. Uh, politicians, also journalists, they add, because they need to travel for their work. Um, so it, it is quite a different policy. Yeah. That's very interesting. It'll be interesting to see if those issues feed into the, the, the measures that are announced next week. We are going to leave it there now for today's podcast. But thanks very much to Naomi and to Pat for joining us and to Dennis, who was with us earlier, also to our producer, Declan Conlon and engineer JJ Vernon. If you would like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, please do go to irishtimes.com slash inside and sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times there. Uh, using that particular address allows us to know how many of our subscribers are also listeners to the Inside Politics podcast. So that is irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you want to get in touch, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>